Grace and peace be to each of you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a delicious hour this is to be in Philadelphia on this almost autumn evening, uh, celebrating God's great faithfulness in the life of this fellowship. I hope you know uh, that there are people all over the world who would give all they have to have a church like this, and that God has done this great work of building this great church in this great city at this time, and that he has used not only Dr. Mason and the elders of this church, but that he is using you to do this great work is a remarkable privilege. Of all of the people that he could have invited to share this moment, this uh, final night of the first revival, which I hope y'all have a whole lot more of, I want to express my profound and sincere gratitude that he, would, uh, that he would let me come uh, to preach the truth about Jesus Christ. I want to draw your attention tonight to a passage in the New Testament, 1 John chapter 4. I want to read into your hearing verses 7 through 13. Breathe a word of prayer and then ask in that prayer the Lord's blessing upon our time. We'll see what the Lord will say to us. 1 John chapter 4. I want to begin reading at verse 7. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. You can pull it up on your smartphone, your tablet, just as long as you don't have a Samsung Galaxy 7 tonight, I think. (laughs) I think we'll be all right. All right. This is how the Bible reads. It says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Beloved, let us love one another. I want to tag this text and our exchange tonight. What's love got to do with it? (laughs) Will you bow in a word of prayer with me, please? Gracious and eternal God, our Father, we do thank you and praise you for Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you for the help and the hope that is ours in his name. And I ask you tonight for preaching power. I pray that you will give me clarity of mind, concision of speech, and conviction of heart, that I may tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I thank you for this church and this pastor, and I pray now that you will speak a word, a right now word, 
the kind of word that speaks to them right where they are and will take them to the place you want them to be. May our gathering in this moment not be in vain. Use me, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John's argument is clear. Lovelessness is godlessness. Many have sought to define and describe love in many ways. I know it because I'm in love myself. She was born almost nine months to the day after I was born. It was as if heaven timed her arrival perfectly, as though I had made it to earth in the secret transactions of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit decided to send her almost nine months to the day after I was born. She's the prettiest woman in the whole wide world. She is fine as frog hair. She is the sugar in my Kool-Aid, the fire in my fireplace, and the activator in my jerry curl. Her name is Kirstie Elizabeth Dates. She's the wife of my youth and now the mother of my children. And when we were dating at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, I had to find a way to communicate love that wasn't sterile or lame. She's a cultured sister. Her mother sings at Carnegie Hall and directs the voice department at the university. And so I had to find a way to communicate love other than just saying, I love you with all my blood pump. And so I did what anybody would do. I took a Shakespeare course and I studied the sonnets <laughs> all semester so that I could speak to her in a way that she would understand. I remember the day, it brings tears to my eyes. We were walking down Dorner Avenue between Pennsylvania and Nevada Street in Champaign. We were coming across a little uh, pond. It was it was that almost melancholy time of day when darkness has just about superseded the light. And I waited for the twinkle to catch in her eye. And I looked at her and I said these words. I said, love is not that which alters when alteration it finds. Neither does it bend to remove with the remover, but it is an ever fix it mark, which looketh upon tempest and remains unchanged. Amen, somebody. You asked me, did it work? <laughs> Here we are 10 years later, two children later, and a lifetime of memories. It's a way to communicate love. But friends, if you are looking tonight for the clearest and most potent definition and declaration of love, you need look no further than 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 13. And this is important because in this passage is not so much our utility, but it is our identity as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Love has everything to do with the church. In this passage, John argues that the truest definition of love is both the personification and the accomplishment of God's grace in the face of our human indifference. In our text, as he defines love, John urges upon us that his explanation isn't so much again for our utility as it is our identity, and it is a potent description of love. 
It's so potent is John's translation of love in human language that in its description, in these verses, is both our identification as children of God and the verification that we are presently in relationship with God. In other words, John says that the articulation of our love for God is not found in the superlatives of our sentiments. It's not found in how hard you go at it in worship, how often you raise your hands or what you sing with your mouth. But the articulation of our love for God is found in the expression of our actions and our treatment of one another. To claim that we know God is to evidence that we are in relationship with him. And to evidence that we are in relationship with God is at the same time to manifest his invisible presence to the world simply through our everyday treatment of one another. I'll say it again. John's argument is clear. This text is tailored to teach us that lovelessness is godlessness. It says to us that the nature of God, who God is at the core, ought to dictate and shape the character of his people. And you ask, and so I'll answer, what does love have to do with it? First John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, you'll notice that the text is neatly outlined by the affirming designation of its original recipients. Twice, John addresses the original audience as beloved. Thereafter, he levels what looks like twin admonitions, but I submit to you tonight that they are distinguished by differing motives. He tells us, first of all, that we ought to love because love communicates the very character of God. And then he says we ought to love because love confirms the residence of God in our lives. Anybody who takes the time to read John's epistle, even a cursory reading, will reveal that John is consumed with godly love. He uses the stem for love in this short epistle more than 30 times. It's as if his pen drips with the conviction that love is more than a constructed idea. It's as if every other paragraph is tripping over the words of love because love for John is a controlling and redemptive force. And that's why you and I ought to love one another in the context of the local church. We ought to love because love actually communicates who God is. Look at it at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. You know how to study the Bible. You're an astute church. Your reputation precedes you. You know that in order to understand a particular passage, you need to study the context, what comes before it and what comes after it. When you read the whole of 1 John chapter 4, it seems like verse 7 shifts abruptly in the thought process of John. But I want to argue tonight that this is not so much a shift as it is a continuation. When he starts verse 1, John tells us not to believe every spirit, but to test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. John begins this chapter by saying you can't believe everybody who gets up and says they're a Christian. 
You can't simply go by what they say, but here is the litmus test for everybody who's a Christian. Watch the consistency and the potency of their love. John moves swiftly on to tell us to love one another. And I think there is wisdom in this, Pastor Mason, because the church can get so caught up in discerning, in critiquing, in assessing, and in evaluating that we will forget our essential move is to love one another. So John says, while you're trying to discern the genuine from the fake, while you're looking, while you're holding up what love is against the people you're looking at, don't you forget yourself to love one another, to clearly identify what authentic love is. John goes on to give us an exposition of love. It's as if he doesn't want us to define love on our own. And if you're looking for it, you can boil it down to what's found in verse 8. God is love. Notice now he does not say love is God. He says God is love. In other words, love is so selfless, so redemptive, so powerful that when we find it and we trace its trails, we will follow its roots and land therein in the very presence of God. When we love church, we communicate who God is to the world and that we belong to him. And in the most intimate and pastoral language, John literally writes this to his church. He says, dear loved ones, let us love one another. He does not say, dear hurt ones, let us hurt one another. He does not say, dear hated ones let us hate one another but it is as if John is saying that loved people ought to love people there's a contradiction when Christians are unlovely because we who have experienced the very love of God ought simply by having received it be communicators of that love to other people The logical inference is to ask the question, why? Why, John, should I love people I don't like? John says it this way. He says we ought to love because love comes from God. In one sense, Paul might argue that all things find their heritage in God. But you notice here in this text that love is not one of many things that finds its heritage in God. Rather, love for John is the primary controlling attribute that moves the heart of God. This is what scholars call a genitive of source. God is the owner, possessor, and distributor of love. In other words, if you get love, it can come to you in no other way. Real love has to come from God. I wonder if y'all hear me tonight. Because this is a not-so-subtle wink against every whimsical, depraved, and carnal definition of love for which humanity is infamous. The raging rebel living and loving on their own terms, standing on the steps of the Supreme Court, shouting love wins, cannot claim God as the source of their love or their lifestyle. I didn't mean to offend you, but I'm going to preach the book tonight. This text says that you have to associate the progenitor with the practitioner of love. 
If you got it, it came from God. And God gets to define love. We don't get to redefine it. We have no right to infringe upon heaven's copyright upon the language of love. It is what God says it is. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And this, friends, is the evidence that some of us are of God and others of us are not. Those who are born of God share this attribute with God and get it from God. That's what John is saying. In other words, you and I can have epistemological certainty that we are God's children when we love. This is what scholars call the communicable attribute of God. In other words, there are many things that you will never share with God. God is omniscient. And I bet you if I asked some of your friends, they would say you think you are too. But the reality is you're not. You may act like you know everything, but you do not. God is omnipresent. And as much as we are fascinated with ubiquity, we cannot, I've tried it, be in more than one place at the same time. God is omnibenevolent. He never does anything wrong or from a bad motive. But I don't know about you, that don't quite work for me. When I try to do good, evil is right up on me. And that there are many ways in which you and I cannot be like God. But here, here is a way in which you and I can be like God. God is love and he enables us to be loving. This is, this is basic, basic human nature one-on-one. You and I can understand this. Every father wants his children to look something like him. And if it looked like I'm saying it with attitude, I am. I wish I could throw a picture of my son up on the screen for you right now. He's five years old. He's the most handsome fellow you've ever seen in your life. I remember when Kiersey was pregnant with him, we would pray every night. I put my hands on the woman. We would pray good godly stuff like, Lord, give him a heart after you. Help him to love his fellow man, to be kind and compassionate. And we would go through all these things. But at the end, I'd throw something in there on the side. I'd say, and Lord, if it please you, I knew it was a boy. My wife did not. God revealed some things to some of us and not to others. And the ultrasound technician confirmed it and I knew she didn't know but I knew I knew it was a boy and and see when you marry up you want your kids to look like the one you married you want them to get a good prom date you know be able to find a nice wife and so I'm praying I'm praying this prayer God God please please let this boy look like his mama Please, Lord God. And I did that for many nights over nine months. And I remember when they pulled him out, I looked at him and I looked at my wife and, and tears came down my face. And I said, dear, he, he looks like you. He's so handsome. She said, really? I said, really? He, he looks just like you. And as, as the weeks went on and as the months went on, he started to look so much like her that, that I started to wonder if I should regret my prayer because every father wants his children in some regard to look like him. I remember it was actually last year. He got into our bed some point in the middle of the night and he squeezed between us as is his custom and he pulled a pillow 
and he went to sleep. My wife got up earlier than I did that next day, and she saw something as the sun was peering through the slit of the curtains in our bedroom, and she pulled out her phone. She snapped a picture, texted to me, and walked down the stairs. I'll never forget it. It was great joy that morning when I woke up, and I pulled out my phone, and she had texted me a picture. It was of Charlie and I sleeping next to one another, but that doesn't mean much to you until you understand how he was sleeping. He had, he had one hand, his left hand underneath the pillow. His head was tilted to the side. His mouth was slightly open, a little bit of drool coming down the side. His right arm was over his head this way, and he was sleeping next to me. And that means something because that's exactly how I sleep. Next to me, we were sleep in the same position. I never taught it to him. I never showed him this is how you sleep. He just knows in his DNA that it's comfortable to slide one hand this way and another hand this way. Now watch this. You could look at that picture and you could say to me, this looks real familiar. He's not you, but he sleeps like you. Listen, friends, he's not me, but he walks like me. He's not me, and he uses a lot of words, however, like me. In other words, when the world looks at the church, they ought to be able to say they're not God, but they look a lot like God. I wonder, are y'all listening to me here tonight? This is what only the Christian can claim. We got what nobody else has. We have the love of God. And when the world looks at the church, they see something about us that points back to who we belong to. We've been changed because we got a father who is love. The converse, however, is true. John warns us that the one who does not love does not know God. The people who are loveless do not have God. And while urging us to love one another, John explains how love works in verse 9. He says, by this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Help me, Holy Ghost. The incarnation, John argues, is the unveiling of God's love for you and I. The love of God was manifested. This word manifested uh, in the original language means to make on and to put on clear display, to make glaringly clear that which was previously unknowable, that which you could not see. John argues that God manifested his love. In this way, God sent his only begotten son into the world. He argues that Jesus is the palpable expression of love not previously known. He, he says that Jesus is the unambiguous affection of God for us. He, he says that Jesus is the obvious exhibit that God cares about us. The incarnation is God talk in human language. It is the speech of heaven in human vocabulary. It, friends, is the clearest dialect of heaven in human prose. It is all God had to give us. I love the way Gardner Taylor says it. He says, after receiving Jesus, if you had gone to God and asked God for more, he would have pulled his pockets out like a pauper and said, I got nothing else to give you. Because in Jesus Christ, heaven emptied its endowment upon earth and showed us who, who God is. 
But that don't move some of y'all. You still sitting there because you all educated and sophisticated and this ain't scratching you where you itch. Well, remember this. God had sent a whole lot of other people before. God sent Moses, but Moses had a temper problem. And instead of talking to the rock, he had to hit the rock. God sent Joshua, but Joshua never fully conquered the promised land. God sent David, but David had a Bill Clinton problem. He liked to philander in the Oval Office. And instead of things getting better, they actually got worse. God sent Isaiah, but Isaiah had a profanity problem. He was a man of unclean lips. God sent Jeremiah, but Jeremiah kept on crying. He regretted the day of his birth. God sent Hosea, but Hosea couldn't get a good wife. God sent Malachi, but Malachi couldn't fix it. So round about Matthew chapter 1, God said, forget it, I'll become a man myself. And he wrapped himself in the likeness of sinful humanity came down 42 generations. Is there anybody in this church that knows my Jesus? Is there anybody in this church that loves my Lord? His name is Jesus Christ. Listen, the love of God commissioned the Son of God. Do you know how to do that for real? The love of God commissioned the Son of God to reveal the Word of God. And you ask, how special is this? How special is this? John answers back that God, in giving us Jesus, gave his one and only son. Oh, help me, Holy Ghost. Jesus isn't one of many. Jesus is the only one. Jesus is the reason that we are related to God. I need y'all to hear me because this would be cool. If, if it was just Jesus was a nice gift that God gave to the world. You hear people talk like that, if, that he's somehow an impotent novelty. But the language of the text is clear. Jesus is sent of God that we might live through him. Listen to the trail of the idea. He is from God for us so that we might live through him. Where he comes from is all-powerful. Who he comes for is powerless. And he is the agency through which the dead find life. Verse 10 then gives us not only how love works, but love, verse 10 says, I want you to understand, John does, that love has a theological foundation. He debunks this anthropocentric notion of love. He says, in this is love, not that we love God. but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Listen to me here tonight. This passage makes it clear that love comes from God. And it did not come from God because we were seeking God. But it came from God. Because God was seeking us. I tell the people at our church, I tell them, stop saying you found God. God wasn't lost. God found you. You were the one who was lost. Now, this is interesting. This is interesting because the text says 
that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. I know y'all ain't got this problem because your pastor loves these theological words. There are some words that you ought never lose in the life of the church. Propitiation is one of them. Try using it Monday when you get back to work. <laughs> propitiation points back to an Old Testament system where an unblemished animal would come in and the priest would lay his hands on the animal and he would transfer the guilt of the people onto the animal. They'd slay the animal, banish the animal, and you'd think that that would fix it, but that did not fix it. Because this day of atonement always pointed forward to the real day of atonement. Every year it would just roll over to the next year, and the priest would come in and he would put his hands on the animal and lay the guilt of the people on the animal, and the unblemished animal would be sacrificed, and that sacrifice would appease the nostrils of God. It would be a sweet-smelling sacrifice unto God, and God would hold the guilt of the people. He would not hold it against them, but he would simply hold it. Now, this is what's marvelous about this text, because this text says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. In other words, what they tried to do in the Old Testament, Jesus actually accomplishes in the New Testament. What, what they were looking forward to in the Old Testament, we look back on it from the New Testament. What, what they were looking for, we got it here. But I see the reason you ain't rejoicing because you don't know what I'm thinking. The beautiful part about this is that in the Old Testament, it took two parties, a priest and the sacrifice but when you get to the new testament jesus is both the priest and the sacrifice that's why i raise my hands in church that's why i lose my cool because my savior died for me and he's the one who sent the gift glory hallelujah to the lamb that was slain i leave you now i'm watching myself here i leave you now i got a few minutes and I just want to work my way through this in verse 11. And I'm going to be in my seat. I'm not taking my time. My soul is happy. And I, I didn't mean to get this happy in this church here tonight. Here, here is the second address. Verse 11 says, Beloved again. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Do, do you feel you can sense the difference from verse 7 to verse 11? In verse 7, John is saying that when we love, we communicate the character of God. And I hope your church does that all the more in the next 10 years. That you will be a church known for your radical, godly love for one another. And in doing that, you show forth to the world and one another what God is like. But there's another reason here why you and I ought to love. This is what love has to do with it. In verse 11, John argues that we love not in response to the nature of God, but we love in response to God's love for us. And in doing so, we actually confirm that God lives inside of us i wish human language is the poverty of speech at this moment because i wish i could articulate how such a great god could fit in such a small soul i i wish that i could talk about how clean 
a God could fit inside such a dirty heart. I, I, I wish I could do it, but, I, but I'm going to say it this way. In the first imperative, we love because in doing so, we explain God's love. In the second imperative, we love because although we can't totally wrap our minds around it, we evidence that God is on the inside of us. And herein is the proof. We can know it because although no one has ever seen God with their eyes, we don't know if he's tall, dark, and handsome. I know y'all real sophisticated. You wouldn't appreciate that, but there are people who think that. We, we don't know what kind of cologne he wears. We don't know what the balconies of heaven look like. But if we love one another, this text argues that we can actually feel what we do not see. This text says that the intangible becomes touchable. That the transcendent becomes imminent. That that which we could not articulate actually possesses us. Do y'all feel it? Nobody's ever seen God. But if we love one another, we know that God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. When you love people who you don't feel like loving, when you show up and you hug folk who you know have been rude and mean to you, when you grab the hand of somebody standing at the open mouth grave of a loved one, you are evidencing that God actually lives inside of you. When you can take a licking in Jesus' name and keep on ticking every day, you are showing the world and yourself that God actually abides in you. And so although you've never seen him, you know he's in there. I, I try to illustrate this and I'm out of your way. Listen, this is the beauty of it. The boys' leadership group at the church the, the old man who teaches the group who took the boys to learn how to fly kites. You know, in the hood, there's some basic things you don't learn how to do. He took them to fly kites, and, and, and one of the boys uh, was late. He was, one, one kid was flying the kite, and the, and the wind, it picked it up. You know how you fly a kite? You got to let the kite go run with it so that the wind picks it up, and you slowly ease the, the yarn or, or the cord so that the flight can go, the kite can go up. And so the little boys, they're flying his kite and, and another little boy comes by who's late he says what are you doing he says I'm flying my kite little boy who's late looks up he says I don't see a kite he said are you sure you're flying he said yes I'm flying my kite the kite had gone up so high that it had left the eyesight of the boys the little boy who was late he says are you sure you're flying a kite he said yes he says but I don't see a kite the little boy said I don't see one either but every now and then I feel this string pull. Y'all ain't playing fair tonight. Listen, I don't know who I'm talking to. You ain't never seen God. But sometimes love grabs hold of your heart. And you feel that thing pulling. And you know it's God on the inside of you that helps you to love unlovable people. Can I get a witness? in this church tonight he's in there because you feel him moving on the inside of your heart I feel him moving on the inside the, the church I grew up in they used to say somebody working on the inside is improving my outside and he brought about a change in my life I got one more 
I got one more and I got to be done. Listen now. Listen now. By this, we know that we abide in him. Not because he's outside of us, but because he is in us. He has given us of his spirit, the, the eternal wise God who, who weighed the mountains in scale. Who, as James Weldon Johnson said, spread out the seven seas, carpeted the earth with grass and tacked it down with daffodils and lilies. That wise, powerful God. We know he is there because he has put his spirit on the inside of us. And this is the emphasis of this text. The emphasis of this text is not on the container, but it's on the possession inside the container. It is not we who get the credit, but it is the God who lives inside of us. And friend, might I tell you that this is what makes you special? What makes you special, my sister? aren't your curves or your dimensions. What makes you special, my brother, isn't the money you got in your pocket. But what makes you special is the God that takes up residence inside of you. Can I say it this way? You might not look on the outside like God lives inside of you, but forget what other people think the outside container looks like. You can know that he's on the inside. I, I pastor a church in Chicago. It's a it's an old church. Y'all 10 years old. In three years, we're going to be 100 years old. And I promise you, some of the people there, they, they make me feel like they were there when it started. We, my wife and I came to the church. I was 30. She was 29. And the chairman of my deacon board said to me, he said, listen now. He said, by the two of you coming here, you brought the median age of our congregation down, down to 50. You can't appreciate it. Darren is here. Darren's been there. Watson is Kelly. They're here. They, 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 they've been there. And, and it's an old church. And I, I, I got some advice on pastoring the old church. And, and, and every pastor I consulted went their advice down to the same phrase. They, they said, whatever, whatever you do, Charlie, do not make any changes quickly. <laughs> well, I, I did the best I could. I tried as hard as I could not to make changes quickly, but I, I knew in order to attract people around in my age group, we had to do some things. And so we started a renovation project. And, and one piece of the renovation project called for this eight-foot concert grand Steinway piano that was in the sanctuary to be moved off of the platform. And I did it in the middle of the week. I didn't do it too close to the weekend. I did it to have some time to recover from it. That, that piano is a problem for some people because they think that David played on that piano. They, they think that that piano is something sacred about it. And so we waited till the middle of the week. We moved that thing down to the basement. And, and remarkably, I kind of made it through. There wasn't a lot of fluff and hush and, and noise about it, but, but people wanted to know where it was. It was downstairs. I was doing my research because the piano was in bad shape. The casing was messed up. The, the harp itself was in bad tuning. We had to keep getting it tuned, and it never really seemed to do what we needed it to do. So I, I started calling companies in to, to tell us what we could get for the piano. 
And, uh, and, and the first company came in and they said, oh, 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 we got you. They said, listen, we'll, we'll give you this brand piano. It was a different brand. We'll give you this brand piano and we'll give you some cash on top of it. And, and so I was like, that's interesting. And, and after about the third company came in and offered us a new piano and cash on top, it occurred to me that they knew something I didn't know. They knew something I didn't know. I said, well, well, here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to call the people who made this piano. We're going to call the Steinway people into the church. They, they came in to uh, older Caucasian sisters, and they lifted up the hood, and they looked around, and they tinkered with stuff, and they started playing it, and they felt underneath. And, and then they looked at me, and they said, sir, what do you want to do? I said, how much, how much is it to get it right? And, and the lady gave me a figure that I could not pay. And I said, no, thank you. No, thank you. She said, well, what are you going to do? I said, well, here's the problem. Other people are offering us money for the piano. And another piano in return, you want to charge me to keep the piano. She said, well, what are they offering you? I pulled out my iPad. I started showing the pictures, big, bright, bright shiny pianos, new pianos. And, and I said, and this is what they're going to give us on top of it. She, she looked at me and she said, sir, what are you doing? And I could tell then that she knew something <laughs> that I didn't know. I wish y'all could have saw my face and watched her as she chewed me that day. She said, listen, sir, you don't want to get some cheap competitor knockoff for what this thing is. She said, do you know what this is? I said, what is it? She raised the hood and she said, embossed right here is a name. Can you read it? And I said, yes, I can read it. She said, read it. I said, Steinway. She said, exactly. She said, we only make five of these a year. She said, this piano is so valuable, not because of the condition it's in, but because of the name that's on the inside of it. Y'all ain't here for me tonight. I'm trying to tell y'all tonight. I don't know how you feel about life, but what's valuable about you is not the name that you think you got. It's not the shape you're in. Sometimes you don't look like a Christian. Sometimes you don't talk like a Christian. But if you open me up, there's a name on the inside of me. And his name is Jesus Christ. Bye-bye now, children. May the Lord God bless you real good. But before I take my seat, I want to tell you, keep on preaching the name. Don't you preach philosophy. Don't you preach naming and claim it. But stand up here and as a church, preach the name. Because there's a name that's above every name. There's a name that soothes your sorrows. There's a name that'll wipe tears from your face. There's a name that'll hold you up. Here's a name. Here's a name. Can I hear you shout his name? Moses couldn't say his name. David couldn't sing his name. Isaiah prophesied his name. But in the hill country, 2,000 years ago, some shepherds came down and they said to the men in the field, Today is born unto you a Savior, and his name is Emmanuel. God with us. Won't he walk with you? Won't he talk with you? Won't he, won't he, won't he, won't he, won't he, won't he stand with you? 
Let the redeemed of the Lord. Anybody been redeemed? Let the redeemed of the Lord shout yeah! 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 Thank you, Jesus! Woo! Old song says something beautiful. It says, when nothing else could help, love lifted me. It is a wonderful thing to know that the goodness of God waited on you and pushed you and caused you to be born again. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Maybe you're here tonight and you've never ever put your confidence in the fact like Pastor Day said he's a propitiation in other words God's anger towards our sinfulness was poured out on Jesus Christ maybe you're here today and you've never placed your confidence in him that he died on the cross and got up from the grave for you. So nothing that you can do can save you. You can search your lineage. That won't save you. You can try to see what the original religions of Africans were. That still won't save you. But the, there's only one that can save you, and that's Christ. What does it mean to be saved, to go from spiritual death to spiritual life? Jesus Christ's cross is the, is the tower for our connection back to God. He is the way we get a signal back to heaven. Heaven's signal is reconfigurated so that we can experience God. If you're here today and you want to place your confidence in him, slip your hand in the air. Slip your hand in the air. Slip your hand in the air. Anyone? Anyone in this room that wants to place their confidence in Jesus Christ? Anyone? Anyone that says yes, I want to say yes to the Lord tonight. I want to say yes to his will, yes to his way. I'm going to place my confidence in him. I'm tired of trying to do life on my own. I want to trust in the fact that Christ did life for me. Lived the life that I can never live. Died the death that I can never die. Raised from the grave that I can never be raised from. If that's you, slip your hand in the air. We'd love to love on you tonight. Amen and amen. Let's give God a hand praise. Let's give God a hand praise.